back, Habibi. Welcome to Rekt, the podcast where we explore what happened when weed went legal in California. I'm Christopher Trout, the editorial and creative director of The Grass Agency, and I'm joined today by my wonderful and fabulous co-hosts, Rena Caria. Yo! And Brandy Moody. Hi! Y'all want to tell people what you do? I am one half of Grass with Christopher Trout, um, and also dabble in other weed things. And I am a freelance marketing researcher and consultant working in cannabis, wine, and spirits, and other vice industries. Sounds fun. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about accountability. This industry has grown to a point where people are starting to think about the things that they're thinking about in other industries like I don't know, ethics. <laughs> uh, and it's pretty new for the weed industry, right? This is a, an industry that was operating completely outside the law and also outside of sort of corporate responsibility and all of those things for many, many years. I got the chance to talk to two people whose jobs didn't exist basically until 2018. One of them is Jennifer Lujan, who is the director of corporate impact at Ease, which is a giant weed delivery platform. They don't actually touch the plant. They are just a software, basically a service for dispensaries that connects dispensaries to consumers. I started working at Lyft pretty early on, and it was to create their Lyft for Good program, which was, again, you know, a new industry and sort of shaping what that industry looked like but also shaping it and really framing the conversation of how ride sharing and transportation could make positive impacts. Like how could Lyft be really utilizing their product in in a way that helped people significantly. While I was at Lyft, my ex-partner and I had had been working in the cannabis, more so in the illicit market. Again, this is all pre-Prop 64. One time he was like, hey, do you want to go deliver this to this veteran that I work with? And I was like, sure. We took the product over to to some of his friends who were at um, SF General. And through that was the birth of Weed for Good. And so Weed for Good um, was an organization that I started that basically donated free cannabis to patients who were terminally ill but low income. Um, And I would work very much with hospice organizations and hospitals, patients who were typically at end of life um, and who were low income and who were very much needing or interested in this medicine, wanting to use this medicine, but had no way of getting it. I was working with about probably 100 patients a month or so. As we started to get close to Prop 64, you know, being enacted till that January timeframe, A lot of these organizations, um, Weed for Good included, obviously knew that that this wasn't necessarily in favor of compassionate care organizations and there was going to be issues, this would, would tax any product, so you couldn't necessarily receive free product anymore. If I were to receive free product from any of the businesses I received before, I was going to end up having to pay taxes on it. And so being an organization that operated as like a nonprofit, there's no way I would be able to do that because the taxes were too significant. Prop 64, I don't think they didn't have this intention. This wasn't 
basically I think just an oversight that they didn't realize until afterwards that like, wow, there's all these compassionate care organizations, there's all these patients who depend on, on these organizations to give them free medicine, and now you can't do that. The medical patient has been basically forgotten about altogether. So right. the entire structure, the whole like regulatory body, the people that created the regulations forgot about the patients. <sighs> I mean, this makes me so sad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was um, listening. It, it's just so Jennifer had um, was also working with hospice. Mm-hmm. patients who mm-hmm. are also low income and like yeah I, um and thinking that they were serving thousands of patients and now maybe only hundreds so what is happening to all all these other people who were getting free weed and um yeah i just well what's happening from oh. from what i've heard and you know from her and from other people is basically those people are either going back on mm-hmm. traditional medications. You have people going back onto opioids, which they got off of as a result of marijuana, or they're going back to the black market. And this is the thing, right? So the regulators have put together this structure that allows for taxation on basically every level, right? State, city, whatever. These companies that are trying to sell you weed mm-hmm. are paying upwards of like 40% in taxes, which is insane. So the price of marijuana goes up, and that's not just for adult use. You know, it goes up for medical too. Yeah. And all of a sudden, those people that could maybe afford to buy it before now can't, and are going back to the black market or going back on opioids. And it's not. I mean, from an advertising perspective, um, you know, we've noticed kind of the the level of sophistication really being heightened in in terms of like advertising and and kind of branding and it's not really like sexy to advertise to cancer patients right and to advertise that this is like a medicinal like no one really uses that term anymore um that this is like medical where you know remember before we were all patients like we had (laughs) yeah we had like our thing and we had to be referred to as patients um back when we had to get the the cards as it were it was kind of like divided, right? There were people that were really sick that needed it and it was me- medicinal. And then there were those of us that like couldn't get access to black market weed or just kind of wanted to buy edibles, right? And that's right. why we all got cards. And then, you know, the the shift of, of legalization of adult use really like kind of the number of people that were going in to just kind of buy the fun stuff and the recreational stuff really increased. So then that became the target market. So then I started at Ease and I basically was like, while we can be able to focus on a million different things, pet rescue centers are extremely worthwhile causes. You know, ocean cleanups are very worthwhile causes. I realized that like our responsibility was right within the industry. And so obviously my first priority, because it's extremely something passionate that I've been and, and the work that I've been doing is um, is on the medicinal side. So we started working on legislation um, and helping support Senator Weiner, who um, is has made it a priority to sort of help fix that compassionate care issue um after prop 64 he had a bill last year um that made its way all the way to governor brown's uh desk but unfortunately wasn't signed we feel very confident that um, governor newsom will pass it 
if this bill passes, then this will open up for more patients to start again receiving this free medicine without the consequences of these organizations to having to pay these taxes. I do understand what Ease is as a company, and I, I kind of always thought, I guess because I did get a delivery from them one time and it was like fraught with like pop-ups and things like that, where mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is like the cheap, you know, this is like my information just got sold up the river. Oh yeah, it's data heavy. Totally data heavy. And and I, I know what their model is and everything. So I kind of was like, oh, ease. But after listening to her interview, Jennifer's, I was like, ease. Well, I, ease has corporate interests too. And this is something uh -huh. that came up in the in the conversation, right? So like, the way that Ease does business is mm -hmm. it is a platform like Lyft or Uber. DoorDash. Or DoorDash, sure. Yeah. They just connect the store to the consumer. That's all they do, right? Um, if those stores don't exist, if there are not enough of those stores, Ease doesn't have a platform to speak of. Right. So they have a vested interest in making sure that as many of these businesses survive as possible. And so what they're doing is they're providing that information. They're providing legal help. They're providing marketing resources and all of these other things to make sure that their partners stay in business. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it's benevolent, but there's also a reason for it, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I like them. And now I'm like, mm, again, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. No, but I, I think they're doing good and interesting work in other ways, Well, too, I mean, the fact right? that they hired... I just think it speaks volumes if they, that they hired her and she came from a place of, again, from from the more regulated medical side of things and the compassionate care and, and really getting the power of the plant to the people that need it. Mm -hmm. And I think that does speak volumes rather than having this, like, reactionary, like, oh, we've been in business for a few years crap, we should do something good for people. Yeah. You know, let's, mm -hmm. let's, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you know, also commendable that they hired her as opposed to mm -hmm. somebody who hadn't worked in the cannabis industry before. It's just so interesting to me that when this was all set up, it just feels like a big miss or big kind of like loss that the Bureau of Cannabis Control wasn't like, okay, wait, there's already people that do this, like hop in here, get in our empty office, which we've learned could stand to have more <laughs> hires. <laughs> you know, Jennifer, you've already done this. Yeah. You know, there's already people in place with the knowledge and the tools to really help proliferate this compassionate care and stuff like this in the legal market. And I just think it was a big miss for them not to due diligence and kind of find these people and bring on board, right? Yeah. And then you have a person that I've known for, I don't know how many years, probably close to 20 years. Her name is Laura Herrera, and she is a consultant. And what she's trying to do is figure out ways to get these companies to work with bureaucracy and to work with big higher education institutions to basically bridge the gaps between their sort of like uh, spaces of knowledge, right? When I came to California in 2010, I came to a farm in Santa Cruz um, where young growers just had a huge setup and I was just floored. I had seen like indoor grows in Austin, like in a closet or in a smart, small apartment building, but I had never seen like a whole outdoor grow. Um, so it made quite an impression on me and then just working with the plant I loved it. While I continued those relationships, um, I also had a professional job. 
as a research administrator working in higher education with um, research grants. So having that duality in my life, now, in 2019, it's fused to allow me to really understand the systems of government that now have to deal with the cannabis economy. Understanding bureaucracy is essential in the cannabis industry now because if you want to be a commercial cannabis operator, you have to fill out so many forms for the different stages of being licensed. And being able to understand policy and translate that into a business plan that's sustainable and can eventually get a license and then be compliant, it's a lot of work. What I'm doing as a consultant um, with cannabis education is really specifically trying to work with the equity population. I mean a person who has either had um, a marijuana charge on their criminal record and maybe now it's expunged or maybe that's why they got an equity license or somebody whose family member or they were in a zip code that was designated as one that um, was over-targeted, over-policed during the war on drugs. I've been working with those people and together because our voices are strong we're able to like make some space in the policy arena 2017 you've got to be thinking like prop 64 is going to go into effect january 1st Mm -hmm. right what did you expect to happen i had i had very low expectations again i i I didn't vote for it i didn't think it was a good idea and I i didn't think we were ready i voted for 64 I was in favor, mostly because it just seemed to me like legalization is a good thing. Given it's not purely legalization, and there are a lot of issues wrapped up in it that at the time I wasn't thinking about, but both Laura and Jennifer were thinking about it, and neither of them supported Prop 64. Yeah. Yeah, I I also did not vote yeah, for Prop no, 64. Because <laughs> the system wasn't broke. I was like, everyone's getting what they need. People are able to get a medical card very easy. Patients are allowed to get free weed. <laughs> There's wonderful products out here. Like, And I knew that the taxes were coming. Shane and I, my partner and I, were, were watching this space closely and, and, and looking at these things and seeing that there was nothing in the laws that that was going to expunge records or you know, let people out of prison for for these minor crimes that they might have been in jail for 10 years for. And now you see these states watching California fuck up. And Illinois, when at least as much as I know, they just, Illinois, they just signed the bill that included... Equity program. Yeah, an equity program and, and consideration for mass incarceration and all of that stuff. So it it's really fucking sad since we're such a huge state and the industry is here that... Yeah, there was no consideration. Like, what was the fucking rush? Like, why did we have to do it? With Prop 64, people say, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? I think that it was a good thing in the sense that it was the first necessary step. We've, um, again, lent, you know, our engineers to uh, Code for America. Code for America is a nonprofit organization that's based in the Bay Area that has done tremendous work. What they did was they, they created an algorithm 
to work with all the different DA's office where it would automatically expunge and clear these cannabis convictions, which is huge because the process otherwise would be someone having to know there's an expungement clinic, which how do you find out about that? And then having to go to the clinic, having to bring all this paperwork after you had to request it from the DA's office, work with an attorney to fill it out, then they have to submit it, then you have to wait. I mean, it's like months of, of work to try to see if you can get it cleared. So being able to use technology um, and being able for them to go in, find these, these records basically and have it automatically done so that nobody actually has to do anything is the way it should be. Why is it that like, corporations are doing that work now. This is the crazy thing mm. to me, right? Is like, okay, so you fucked up. You didn't you didn't think about equity programs or you didn't think about how to actually fund an equity program so that it could last. You didn't think about mass incarceration and the overturning of all of these, you know, like the expunging of all of these records for people that have had cannabis convictions in the past. Mm -hmm. You didn't think about how you were going to reincorporate those people into a legalized industry. Cool. You didn't think about those things. Well, now you have the, the opportunity to fix it, right? The regulations change regularly, but the people actually doing the work are corporations and they're not doing enough of it you know what i mean like well, one one woman at ease not to say that her department is just her but like one woman at ease can only do so much work you know one consultant going to dc and trying to connect berkeley scientists to politicians in dc is only one person yeah you know I, like I, yeah. where the fuck's the government i would have never thought you'd have to tell somebody that their record was cleared or that it wouldn't just automatically tell you that your record was cleared. right and then what's like where's my cheat sheet of like what does that mean for you you right, know right. like what does that mean for me now like, yeah and it's like a workshop that needs to be done and i bet you a lot of these people who have records are very distrustful of the government yeah. <laughs> so it's like they're not trying to go back and be like hey remember me and I had a record like you know right remember when you arrested me for <laughs> yeah. and I was in prison like we cool now yeah <laughs> you know I mean like even even I mean this is just unforeseen still even if the PSA happens like who's to say that these people are going to go back to the places that well, and who's to, who's to say <laughs> that, that they're gonna see it they're like, no, that's the other thing it's oh, like yeah. how many I mean I don't watch fucking public television anymore right yeah like no one has commercials watching right. netflix right psas aren't coming through netflix telling me that i got my record expunged that's yeah. not happening um right and if i saw a billboard i'd be like that's a trap that's a trap <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna get me yeah yeah well and there's still no guarantee that they won't get you right the federal government it's still illegal on the federal level right so much of this is about education on mm -hmm. every level, right? And that's every what I level. kept on coming back to with these these interviews was that like both Laura and Jennifer are having to educate everybody from top to bottom. Like they're educating your grandma, they're educating the senators, they're educating the CEOs, you know, they're they're educating the law enforcement and the medical industry and talking to people in higher education. It's like it's all about teaching people what the hell's going on because absolutely everybody involved doesn't get it why did everybody over promise and under deliver like why did they say that as soon as cannabis was legal all these good things were going to happen and they haven't and bureaucracy is the answer 
Yeah. So, and that's my wheelhouse. So to teach people, the public and, and the, the business community, the private sector, all these the equity community, the applicants who, who want to get their licenses, to try to explain everybody how they're going to have to do that and how long it's going to take is tough. And then to explain to the people at the other end of it, the government administrators, the history and context of the cannabis industry, the hands-on, real-life, tangible part of the cannabis industry and the plant, and then adding scientific research, what is actually true, what has actually been proven, and then the projections of the future. It's just so complex. It's this whole universe um, with multiple dimensions and concentric circles. And I don't know who thought this was going to be easy. I think there's always this thought, right, that like private, privatize it, it'll work a lot faster, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And like just talking about like, you know, Jay-Z entering the space with this promise of social equity, right? Where it's like privatize it and it'll work faster. Mm-hmm. But then like you just think about no, because it's going to hit that wall of big government yeah. and the big machine moves slowly and no matter how much money you have, you still have this bureaucracy, right? Like, there's still paperwork that has to be done when someone leaves prison. There's still, like, all of this so type... So much paperwork. Exactly. So it's like, even if you privatize it, it's still going to go slowly. Again, it's that whole program, right? It's still, like, a lifestyle kind of change for people. And there needs to be education on both sides. And you can't just disrupt social equity right right well and let's let's be real about it like ease is not in the business of social equity mm-hmm. ease is in the business of selling weed mm-hmm. like maybe not directly but they're in the, the fucking weed business you know they're only gonna do so much they can only put on so many you know seminars and fundraisers or whatever like the question that it kept on coming up with these two but with basically everybody i've talked to is like whose responsibility is it Right. Is it me or not me personally, but is it me as like the former convict, you know, who was the person that was incarcerated, who was in jail for years on a marijuana charge? Is it up to me now to find my way and find these resources? Is it the government's responsibility to give you a path to that? Is it the corporation's responsibility to to get, you know, give back to the people who they're profiting off of, Mm -hmm. whose history they profit off of? Um, Jennifer was like. And I think this is true. It's everybody's responsibility. You know, all of us that have some part in this, all of us who benefit from marijuana, all of us who uh, benefit from it either just personally or financially, it's all of our responsibilities. And she was like, it goes from the consumer to the media to the government to big money. Like all, all the people involved need to be pushing in the right direction. The problem is, is that we've now made it recreational right like i don't think about the booze industry i was and my responsibility yeah. to anheuser busch or you know whatever i don't i don't think about corporate responsibility when it comes to them i think about is this going to get me drunk and does it taste good i was thinking about this actually a lot in in terms of this conversation right because i have worked in the booze industry for a long time and never are we like okay guys how do we get people with DUIs out of jail? And how do we get the like felony DUIs? How do we what's their reentry program? Mm-hmm. You know, and and I I get it. It's 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 very different. It is it, different. But but at the same time, I think that's why it's also kind of like 
it's an interesting kind of parallel right now because I think a lot of consumers can't wrap their head around that because they don't, they're so far on the other side. They don't know about like, oh, right. Like it, it would really be a light bulb for someone who's like casually buying a joint here and there, casually buying some edibles to be like, oh, right. People like are in jail for life for this. Right. You know, I just, I think that's like a big light bulb that has to go go off for like the average consumer. Well, I think one of the other ways, and this is something that you and I have been learning more and more about, is knowing who you're buying your weed from. Oh, totally. Mm. So like as a consumer, right? Okay, so you don't have a ton of money. Maybe you don't have a ton of time. But like don't buy from the people who are a giant Canadian corporation who aren't doing shit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to help the community. Don't buy from the dirtbag who evicted another dispensary in order to open up his own. Like... Most people don't have that information and that's what we're working on with the grass guide. But like, just be a conscientious consumer. Right. And like understand like corporate transparency, right? Like, right. But like, that's asking so much. Even just saying it right now, I'm realizing (laughs) like, I don't do that for anything else, basically. Oh, see, I do. And I'm like, it it almost is to the point where you're like, oh, I can't buy that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or it's like that kind of thing when you find out like that you kind can't of have a canvas tote bag anymore. Right. <laughs> or like or Chick-fil-A. I mean, no, exactly. <laughs> well, y'all should have known about Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A a while I've been, back. I've been known about. <laughs> See, you do know. There are <laughs> yeah. some things that, you know, where well, to get a chicken sandwich. Wrecked is a podcast of the Grass Agency. I'm Christopher Trout. My co-hosts are Rena Karia and Brandy Moody. We're produced and edited by Kyle Mock, and our theme music is by Regender. Follow us at The Grass Agency on Instagram and Twitter. We'll see you next week.